Lord and Father, we ask you, cleanse our heart, forgive us of sin. Lord, thank you for bringing the ladies out this evening. And Lord, we just ask that you would just bless. Lord, that we would allow your word to permeate our heart. Father, that you would teach us what it is to put shoe leather to the gospel that you have given to us. And Lord, we understand that this is critical for our life. It's critical um, for being a witness, for being an example. Um, and so, Lord, I just ask that you would teach us and that you would show us how to walk and to put this all into practice, Lord, that we may be doers of the word and not just hearers only, Lord. So, Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. seems like it's been forever since we've been working on Colossians because we had prayer last week and then the retreat. Um, I want you to keep in mind uh, that the false teachers at Colossae had attacked the authority and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. The pagan religion of Paul's days said little or nothing about personal morality. And um, we know that many of the pagan religions actually practice a whole lot of immorality. So let's look at verses 1 through 4. If, or that word if, means since then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. As Christ was resurrected from the dead, we now have the capability of living the resurrected lives here on earth. What a joy to understand that and to comprehend that we can live the resurrected life, no longer held captive by the things of this world, no longer held captive to sin and its influences. The believer seeks the things which are above. Everything here on this earth pales in comparison to our relationship with the Lord and what he has done for every one of us. The believer lives for the future. We understand that everything is temporal and that uh, this world, uh, in comparison to walking with the Lord, our goal is eternal. Um, What are we living for? We always have to ask ourselves, what am I living for? What am I caught up into? Nothing is worth my relationship and my eternal goals that God has for me. You'll remember that Jesus said, uh, spoke about a parable about a man who was a very wealthy man. And he had built uh, a barn. And he decided one day, I'm going to tear down these barns and I'm going to make bigger barns because I'm that wealthy. And God says, you fool. This night your soul shall be required of you. I'll never forget at age maybe anywhere from 20 to 24 years old, I had to go to City of Hope. And I remember going there with my sister, and she was, she was 20. She was much younger than I was. And I remember sitting in there, and this older woman, my age right now, um, sat down and she began. And I remember before I walked into City of Hope, and I said, Lord, if you will open the door, I will share your word. And I remember sitting in the, in the little cubicles, you know, I don't care what doctor's office you go to, they put you in little cubicles. And there was probably about five or ten people sitting in this cubicle. And I remember sitting with my sister, and as I was sitting there, this woman, who's probably about 65 years old, um, just began sharing with me. I did, you know, she just, you know, some people you click and they start opening and they share and they share and they, she just began sharing her life. And this was a woman of incredible wealth, except that she was going through a divorce and her husband was taking everything from her. And, um, he was taking everything and at the same time she was dying of cancer. 
I don't know how much time she had. She didn't have a whole lot of time. And I remember at 24 years old thinking, Lord, give me something to say. I don't know what to say to this girl, what do, this woman. What do I say to this woman? And I remember as she's speaking with me, the only thing that came to my mind was Job. And Job said, naked I come, naked I go. There's nothing I'm taking out of this world except my relationship with Jesus Christ. And I shared that with her because I knew that she had incredible wealth. And I shared with her that. And as I shared that little bit with her, I asked her, would you like to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And she said, no. And I remember thinking, you know what? I mean, I was devastated. I go, okay. You know, but I remember thinking, you know what? I planted the seed. Someone's going to come alongside and they're going to water that seed. So that was okay. As long as I was obedient, because remember I told you before I walked into the, the doctors, I said, Lord, if you will open the door and God clearly opened the door, you know, and I never forget a pastor who shared one time, you never see a, a hearse pulling a U-Haul. We're not taking anything with us. The only thing we're taking is our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so what are you doing about that relationship? Are you walking? I don't want Jesus to say to Trudy, you fool, this night your soul shall be required of you. What am I doing with my relationship with Jesus? Um, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, where you and I will be also one day in glory. One day we're going to stand with him. One day we're going to be face to face with him. As a believer, we live a new life in an extraordinary way. Everything about our life is tied to Jesus Christ. Everything. Isn't that cool to think about? Everything about my life is tied to Jesus Christ. You and I all have ties. It's to Jesus Christ. We live in the state of forgiveness of sins and the gift of God's righteousness. What is righteousness? Right relationship with God. The incredible blessings of a life in Christ are eternal and they are abundant. The new life in Christ is a new beginning, a new perspective, a new destiny, a new power. This is all dependent to you and uh, you and I uh, living that resurrected life. If you choose not to live that resurrected life, die to your flesh, you will be, of all men, most miserable, of all women, most miserable, because you will never be able to partake of all that God has for you. If you choose to live life on your terms, it's dependent on living the resurrected life. In verse 3, it says, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Romans 6, verse 13 says, And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. This is the resurrected life. I know a person who's dying right now of cancer. I don't know how long they give him days. And um, a pastor went to go see this man and he is using the most foulest, filthiest language, but he's sure he's going to heaven. That is not the resurrected life. So you can't be a Christian and do whatever you want. I hate it when you watch TV and they show some crazy, wild, foolish Christian. That is such a poor representation of what Christianity is all about. We have crucified our old sin nature. It is not to dominate our lives ever again. It's crucified. Everything gives way to him. A life hidden in Christ is demonstrated in many ways, which we'll look at this evening. But this requires discipline on the believer's part. We're told in verses 5 through 7, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, 
fornication, uncleanness, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Before Christ, we were bound to these things. These things were a part of our life. But with Christ, they have nothing to do with our life. Those who live the resurrected life put to death certain behaviors. And unfortunately, these behaviors are thought to be normal in our society together. The list begins with fornication, sexual immorality. That is just a normal practice. You see it all the time. Uncleanliness includes thoughts, words, looks, gestures, and jokes. Uncleanliness. Passion speaks of uncontrolled passion or lust. Evil desires, covetousness, all wanting more, which is idolatry. The list represents debauchery. This list is repulsive to our holy God. And as we walk up with God, our life is to be holy. Remember, God says, be holy, for I am holy. This list that I just presented before you needs to be repulsive to you as well. You're not better than the individuals that practice this, but you want nothing to do with this in your lifestyle. All of the above is to, is to be put to death, but it's actually encouraged and lived out in almost every facet of our society. The world actually laughs. They are entertained by this list in their living rooms almost every night as they put on the television. Ladies, God's not laughing. God is not laughing at this list. I was told uh, on the Family Channel there will be a show depicting transgender and how it is a normal part of family. It is not a normal part of family. Matter of fact, I was talking to my husband uh, tonight, and he was telling me how two pastors, which I would appreciate if you would pray for them, two pastors in Idaho that are in jail tonight because they refuse to marry homosexuals. Ladies, we can't adopt the standard of the world. We see perversion and debauchery in our commercials from a hamburger to a candy bar. Debauchery is depicted in every sense of it. It festers and grows like a cancer in our schools, our universities. Even some of our churches are embracing it, not to mention how technology aids in the, in the spread of the perversion that goes on in our country. I just heard on the news uh, a couple of weeks ago um, that they're passing a law that prohibits state workers at the state department the access of watching pornography on their commu- computers. They discovered that some watched as much as six hours a day at the workforce. This is what our state department, six hours of pornography. We're paying for that? Romans 16, verse 19 says, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent concerning evil. God doesn't want you to know about the filthy jokes. He doesn't want you to know about the filthy programs that are on television. He says, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent concerning evil. The sad truth of this conduct results in the destruction and the ruin of lives. But worse than that, this lifestyle brings upon them the wrath of God. Because God is not approving. God is not laughing. Because we are being conformed into his image, we are no longer to practice or desire this sinful lifestyle. We are to put it to death, God says. Now Paul is going to tell us what we are to put off just as you would take off an old, soiled piece of clothing. In verses 8 and 9, Paul says, But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, 
wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. The first three uh, deal with bad attitudes towards one another. And I know none of you have this problem with bad attitudes. But just in case, the enemy creeps in like a stealth. And you know what? He does. He can creep in like a stealth, and you can say things you never thought you would say. You have to be on your guard. You have to crucify your flesh. We are to put off anger, meaning smoldering emotions that boil below the surface. Guilty. Guilty. We are to put off wrath, meaning a quick, sudden outburst, a blaze of emotion. And this... Wrath was never so clear to me as probably about 20 years ago, I remember walking into a bank. And as I walked into this bank, I had to deal with uh, this bank person. And I don't even know what set me off. And I'm not one of these people that is just real um, vocal. I can, I, can, I can hold it together. Maybe not at home, but I can hold it together in public. I know how to behave myself. But I remember whatever she did just set me off. And I remember, blah, 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 these things came out. And I remember leaving, and I just felt such incredible despair, such incredible conviction, the guilt that I felt for saying that. And I got home, and I just cried, and I said, Lord, I'm so sorry. And the Lord said, I want you to go back, and I want you to apologize to that woman. So there I go. Go walking into that bank, and I'm sure she wanted to see me like nobody else, right? And I remember saying, I'd like to talk to you. And I remember her saying very sternly, you'll have to wait a moment. I'm talking with somebody right now. And she just, she was, she was not happy at all. And I remember after she was done talking to the person, um, I went up to her and I just said, you know what? I want to apologize. I am so sorry for, for my behavior. I just want you to forgive me. And I don't remember what she said, but I just know that I felt better because this is what God had told me to do. Had I been a little more spirit-controlled and put to death and taken off wrath, part of the filthy, soiled clothing that God removes from us when we come to know him, I would have never had to do that. So we need to take off wrath, take off anger, take off malice, meaning deliberate intentions of doing harm to others. Then Paul states blasphemy, blasphemy, meaning evil speaking, slander, defamation of character. He says, put off filthy language out of your mouth, obscene or abusive speech. And you know, sometimes abusive language doesn't have to be Swear language. I've seen people do tongue lashings without ever using a swear word. And so we're to be careful how our speech and how our conduct is. And then he says lying, which is misrepresentation of the truth, which I'm sure all of you knew that. It is done so deceptively in so many ways we can deceive ourselves. Because we talk about the little white lie and just the partial truth and not telling the whole truth. I don't care how you frame it, a lie is a lie. God looks at it as a lie. So let me capsulate uh, it for you. We are to put off perverted passions, hot tempers, sharp tongues, and lying. The remnant of the former lifestyles are not to be discarded, or are to be discarded like old, soiled piece of clothing. And you remember we had a girl from Iran come and share when she was put in prison. Remember when she had to go to prison? Well, I remember listening to another young lady who had to go to prison for her faith. And she said when she walked into the prison cell, 
They gave her clothing to wear. And the clothing was so filthy and so foul and such an incredible stench. And she actually said there were like little hairs all through the clothing. That's a visual. She just couldn't bear the thought of having to put that piece of cloth on her skin. Ladies, this is a picture of the list that I just gave you. We should not be able to bear to put these things on our body. We should have nothing to do with anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, or lying. Um, We need to be really careful. We need to understand who we're representing. As we remove the remnants and discard the former lifestyle, Paul is going to tell us what we are to put on. We remove these soiled piece of cloth, but God gives us something to put on. And in verse 10 it says, And put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. By his grace he makes us new. Old sin nature has been forgiven. It was taken to the cross. Jesus died for that sin. Not that we can pick it back up. Not that we can put it back on. He died and he's forgiven us for that sin. We are continually growing in the knowledge of him. As we yield to the knowledge, we are being conformed into his image. I hope that is your desire. That you are every day being conformed into his image. Romans 8.29 says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. His dear son. This is what we are desiring. And it doesn't just happen um, any more than an individual becomes a gold medalist at the Olympics. Um, Even your most athletic person must train, and that person must train hard. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 25, and 27, And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. Paul says, for I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection. Every one of us must discipline ourselves. Every one of us brings our body into the subjection of the Holy Spirit by the word of God. Just as a soldier must also. In 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, it says, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And this picture is very clear to me. Because as I was able to hear some of the stories of the training that my son went through before he went to war. And you know, there's some things he never shared with me. But some of the things that he had to endure to prepare him. You and I have to die to our flesh. We don't live like the world lives. We're different. God's done something incredibly different with us. So we are to put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. We continue to grow, disciplining our lives through the knowledge of his word and dying to the old sin nature. And it doesn't just happen. We continually crucify our flesh. Continually. Every single day. We have to crucify that old man. The verse goes on. In verse 11 it says, Where, ooh, ooh. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. 
In the body of believers, there's no distinction between race, religion, culture, or social position. All believers are equal. And I love it. I love that no one's better than anybody else. Every one of us in this room are the same. We are all a part of the body of Christ. We all are important in the body of Christ. We all have our, our ministry. We all have our function in the body of Jesus Christ. He says in Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Jew wasn't any better than the Gentile. In Romans 10, verse 12, it says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. We're all the same. Every one of us in this room. As a Christian, our identity is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. We are all a child of God, all heirs of God, all citizens of heaven, all saints, and God's workmanship. God's grace bridges that gap. You'll remember in Colossians, there were people that thought they had superior knowledge and they knew more than anybody else. Don't ever fall for that. We're all the same. Paul goes on in verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, the word elect means chosen. Uh, We are chosen of God. We are holy and we are beloved. Because we are chosen, holy and beloved, look at what we are clothed with instead of the soiled, filthy clothes of the world. Speaking of our fleshly attire. We are now clothed with God's virtues. Verse 12 goes on to say, put on Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Now, that's a far cry from sexual immorality, uncontrolled passions, anger, malice, blasphemy, and filthy language. Now, now we put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. Since the old sin nature has been put off, we are to clothe ourselves with the characteristics of our Lord. These virtues uh, will manifest in that resurrected life, as we live the resurrected life. We're told in Titus 2, verse 14, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. You could never purchase this clothing line from Donna Karen, Michael Kaur, or Prada. They can't do it. It can't be manufactured. It is a gift from God. He clothes you with these things. Uh, these virtues have to do with personal relationship between one person and another person as we interject with one another. We are told tender mercies we are to put on, meaning heartfelt sympathy for those suffering or in need. And isn't that what we go through when we, you know, um, I, I was able to talk to some women this weekend and my heart was just dying for some of the things that they're going through. And just the Lord impressed, you pray, you pray, you pray, you pray for these individuals. Um, We are to put on kindness, meaning a helpful spirit, which, uh, which meets needs through good deeds. We are to put humility, meaning an attitude free of pride and self-assertion. We are to put on meekness, meaning power under control. We are to put on long suffering, meaning long tempered. He says in verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Paul is talking about forbearance. We're to hold back. We don't just let everything go. We hold back. We're spirit controlled. Paul uses Christ as our example of his forbearance towards you and I. He adds, we are to implement the forgiveness we have received, and we are to be forgiving to others. 
Between being clothed with these virtues and having Christ as our example, we can accomplish what he asks by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can do this. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, the scriptures tell us. Now Paul saves the best article of clothing for last. In verse 14, he says, But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. The word love is agape, which identifies God's divine love, distinct from man's. You and I could never have this kind of love. Our love is far too shallow. But God's love is deep. It's wide. Well, we can never know the depth of God's love. It is the source of all that pleases God and the only motive God honors. Love is the identifying mark of a disciple. In John 13, verse 35, it says, By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Um, we are cautioned in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. Listen to this. Though I speak with tongues of men of angels and have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I give my, uh, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, he says, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. God further explains his uh, love in verses 4 through 7 of the same chapter. Uh, God's love is patient. It's kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no score of wrong. Uh, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. This is a clear understanding of God's agape love. And after, after defining what love is, the chapter closes with this in verse 13. And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest is love, he says. Love covers a multitude, multitude of sin in 1 Peter chapter 8, verse 8. Love is the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. Love is the only thing that does not fail in 1 Corinthians 13.8. Love is a mark of the maturity and of a disciple of Jesus Christ in John 13.35. This is the most important Christian virtue, love. The list of virtues and graces are all aspects of God's love. You can look at love as the outer garments, which unites and holds together all the virtues, which together make up perfection, which speak of maturity. Warren Wiersbe states, when love rules in our lives, it unites all the spiritual virtues so that there is beauty, harmony, indicating a spiritual maturity. When you put all these in action, it defines a mature believer who's growing who's walking with God, who's being an imitator of God. Verse 15 says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called uh, into one body, and be thankful. When we come to Christ, we have the peace of God. Romans 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we walk with him, we experience the peace of God. 
We first experienced peace with God. Now we experience the peace of God through life and life's situation. Philippians 4, verses um, 7, it says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In view of obedience, allow the peace of God to rule, which means to umpire your heart, meaning the intellect, the emotions, and the will, not the false teachers in the uh, in the, which, which they were dealing with in Colossae. He goes on in verse 15, he says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. In this body, there are many members, which we talked about earlier. And we are united as one because of Jesus Christ. And we are ever thankful for all that he has done in our life. I am very grateful for what God's doing in my life. I'm grateful for what he's doing in your life as a body ministry and how God is working and operating. Um, now look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Notice first we are to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. God's word is invaluable, it's vital, and it's treasured by every believer. This is the source of true wisdom, which allows you and I to be wise. As we allow God's word to be poured into us, God will minister his wisdom as we go through life and life's situation. You are to allow the word to go deep into your heart. You are to meditate upon the word. Let it guide your every step. As you do... You are to admonish one another. And ladies, how can we admonish one another, encourage one another, if we don't know what the Word of God says? So we must spend time in the Word of God. And then he goes on in verse 16, he says, We are to admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Worship is so important. So many times people come in late, they don't get to hear all the worship. They think, oh, that's okay. It's not fill-in time. We need to understand worship is not filling time. In Psalms 13, verse 6, it says, I will sing to the Lord. In Psalms 81, verse 1, it says, Sing aloud to God our strength. Make a joyful shout to the God of Jacob. The songs that we sing are hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. Miriam led the women with timbrels and songs of worship to the Lord as they had crossed over to the other side of the Red Sea. Deborah's song of thanksgiving is recorded as God led them to victory over Sisera and his army. And what about David, who danced with joy and worshipped the Lord as they brought the Ark of the Covenant back into the city? Jesus and his disciples sang hymns as they went to the Mount of Olives after leaving Passover. What about Paul and Barnabas as they sang songs of worship while shackled in a jail cell? What a witness they were to the other cellmates. I think about Farshi, who's in Iran prison right now. And another brother was sent to prison as he went into that prison and he could hear someone in one of the prison cells singing worship songs to the Lord. What an encouragement. Worship is a, 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 an incredible form of encouragement to every one of us. Sometimes well, I can remember just being so down, and I'd put on worship, and it would just take me right out of that and lift me into the presence of God. Worship is so important for every believer. When we worship, we are, ador- uh, we are 
adoring, honoring, and embracing God simply for who he is. Worship is the overflow of hearts that are thankful and full of wonder. We worship God when we lift our hearts in voices in grateful acknowledgement of how he has revealed himself in our lives. In worship, we recognize him as faithful, trustworthy, a provider, a protector, a redeemer, a refuge, a comforter, a healer, a sustainer, a source of strength, a helper, a father, a friend. The list goes on and on as we worship him, as we express worship to him. Paul moves on in verse 17. And whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the Father through him. Word or deed is our personal accountability before him. What we say, how we conduct ourselves represents the Lord. We always understand that we are his ambassadors. We always understand somebody's watching us. You have no idea. Someone is always watching your lives. How are you, how are you presenting yourself? How is your word and how is your deed before others, before, the, before an un, unbelieving world? How is our word and our deed? What we do, it is our desire to honor him. You know, my son just, uh, my grandson just left this morning for um, camp and he was so excited. And I just said, Gage, you have a great time. You have a blast. But whatever you do, you honor God. Someone's always watching us. Whatever we do, we honor God. In Matthew 5, verse 13, it says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Are people seeing your good works? Or are they seeing the filthy clothes that you've allowed to come back onto your life? All our actions manifest giving thanks to God the Father through him. As we give thanks, it demonstrates our dependency and our ongoing trust to the Father. Forever thankful, never taking uh, anything for granted. Now we come to God's order for family. And because of what we have just learned regarding living the resurrected life, we get an opportunity to demonstrate it, being a doer, uh, and it brings... And it begins in the home. Being a doer of the word begins in the home. Some of you have unsaved family members. Being a doer in that unsaved family. Being a doer with that unsaved spouse. Being a doer with those adult children that we have. Um, In verse 18 it says, Wives, submit to your own husband as is fitting in the Lord. God's created order is that the wife submit. Submission uh, has nothing to do with inferiority, but everything to do with God's design for efficiency. The wife is to submit to her husband according to God's principles, just as Christ submitted to the Father. You are to yield to your husband's authority, but that does not mean you go along with everything he tells you. Anything that is in violation to the scriptures, you are to disagree. You are to minister to your husband, and you are to share the word with your husband. Um, There are amazing advantages as the wife is obedient to God's plan. She submits as unto the Lord. And maybe your husband hasn't been the best. You submit unto him as unto the Lord. And you will be blessed. God will honor it. Then in verse 19, it says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. The husband is to love the wife as Christ loved the church and died for her. As we look to Jesus, 
He loves the church, cares for the church, protects and seeks the church's well-being. This is what our husbands are to do uh, for the wives. God has designed marriage to be a blessing, but it cannot unless under the guiding principle of God's word. Then it says in verse 20, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Children are to obey their parents. They are to honor their parents all their lives. But when they are children, they are to obey their parents. Uh, Lorraine shared a few weeks ago how uh, when she would minister to her children and maybe they didn't like what she had to share, she said, you know what? She gave them the word. You argue with him. This is God's authority, not my authority. And I think every Christian mom has done that. You can argue with me all you want about how I feel about things, but you can't argue with God's word. It is, it is the last word. The many blessings children reap who heed the instruction of godly parents. Verse 21 tells us, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. This verse is a solemn warning regarding parents' treatment of their children. This consists of mistreatment in any form. But let me also include Ephesians 6, verse 4. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the admonition, uh, training and admonition of the Lord. But I think children are provoked when parents teach their children godly principles, but they themselves don't live it out. They don't see them practice those same principles. You can um, provoke your children. Um, I'll never forget when Xavier and I first started having our children, and I remember thinking, Lord, you, you need to teach us. You need to show us because I can't train and teach my children the way I was trained. And I'm not bashing my parents. They did the best they could, but I know God has a godly standard. He has godly principles that he has given us and how we are to um, teach our children. And we have incredible examples in the pages of scripture as well as um, uh, those today, contemporaries. I think about Rebecca who encouraged deception for her son. I think about Jacob who showed partiality causing jealousy with his children. I think about Eli, the high priest, who did not discipline his children. These are examples These are examples of what you and I must never do. And then there is the example of Moses' mother, who had Moses for such a short time. And the teaching that she must have ingrained in him as a youth, as a young boy, before he went to live in Pharaoh's palace. So much so that when Moses became a man, he said that he esteemed the reproaches of Christ of greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Because he had been taught as a youth. We have no idea what we are doing for our children as we are obedient to share God's word and to train them up in the ways of the Lord. We need to be obedient. Deuteronomy 6 verse 7, you shall teach them, speaking of God's words diligently to your children and talk of them when... You sit in your house when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. We use everything as a learning tool for our children. We want our children well prepared. Never forget our children are a gift from God. They're only lent to us for a season. And it seems like when you're in the midst of it, it's forever. But looking back, it went so fast. It went so fast. And you know what? You want to be obedient to what God has called you to as you instruct and as you teach your children. Uh, Next, 
we come to a bondservant and masters whom we have already established in your homework can be applied to employees and employer relationships. And it states in verses 23 to 25, it says, Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men please but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. I think all of us know what eye service is, but just in case you don't, listen to this. Eye service is only an appearance of working hard. We've all worked with individuals who work much harder at not working. We've all worked with those kind of people. Uh, there are also those who do fabulous work when the boss is present. But when the boss is gone, those, those same people don't do anything. I'm amazed at the work ethics of people today who want the high salary but have no intention of displaying any integrity uh, in their jobs. Imagine, they really want you to work and to earn your salary? What a crazy thought. What was I thinking, right? How many times do you see youth? They don't want to work. They want everything given to them. When they go to work, I say, I want this much money. But they're not willing to work for it. We all have to work hard. We all. When we, as a believer, we need to have the best work ethics, better than the world. But unfortunately, I see some Christians have the same work ethics as those in the world. We're told in verse 23, And whatever you do, do it hardly as unto the Lord, not to men. For the believer, our real boss, is Jesus Christ. This is who we seek to serve, whether it's in the workforce or at home. Everything we do, we do for his glory. We're looking for his approval. Every believer should have the best work ethics. In Philippians 2, verse 15, it says that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in this world. Uh, Daniel had such an outstanding worth ethic uh, that his co-workers had to make up a plan to make him look bad. He had that good of a work ethic. We are to be blameless. None are to find fault in us. We live in a world where it's okay uh, with stealing from the boss, whether it's time, merchandise, or money. Because the world does it, we don't. Just because the world does it doesn't mean we can even if our bosses are unfair. In verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Our reward comes from him. You may never get the recognition from your boss, but let me tell you, God God sees it. God recognizes it. But if you choose to serve with mere eye service and not in sincerity, know that you will be repaid for this service because the Lord will show no partiality as he deals with you. That's what the scripture says. And in Galatians 6, verse 7, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. Lastly, in Colossians 4, verse 1, it says, Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now Paul deals with employers or those, or maybe you are just above other workers. And God expects you to be fair as you are given that position of authority. You are to deal equitably 
uh, with your employees. We're told in Luke 12, verse 48, for everyone to whom much is given, much is required. If God has placed you in that position, you are to be honest. You are to be fair. You are to deal wonderfully with these people. Those in high position know there is someone higher than they. Again, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. So ladies, while you remove the soiled, filthy clothes that God has died for and put on the clothes that he has given us. Remember, as a believer, everything about our life is tied to Jesus Christ. Everything. So how are you representing him? Are you being an imitator of him? Are you an extension of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now, Lord. And, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word and how your word transforms lives, Lord. Father, I just pray that as we walk before you in this world, that we will manifest your graces, your virtues, that we would seek to honor you, that we would seek that whatever we do, we do for you, for your glory, for your honor. And, Lord, I just pray that um, you would teach us how to put these principles into practice, whether it be in the workforce, whether it be at home, whether it be with our husbands, whether it be dealing with our children. Lord, that you will manifest these principles and that we will put them into practice, Lord. And we just praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, ladies.